Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. ES Audio. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Fuller's London Pride, an outstanding amber ale and the official beer of Premiership Rugby. And don't forget, you can now watch the full extended video podcast of today's show at londonpridebeer.co.uk. Support with pride and please drink responsibly. Lawrence Delalio's Rugby Podcast, supported by Fuller's London Pride, the official beer of Premiership Rugby. Hello, everyone. I'm Lawrence Delalia. Welcome to the Rugby Podcast. Well, what a weekend. The Six Nations and the Gallagher Premiership were both back in full swing, so there's plenty for us to talk about. Before we do that, let me introduce my guests this week. Starting with our special guest, I'm delighted to welcome someone who has many strings to her bow. Not only is she a radio and TV broadcaster and well-known maths genius, but she also holds a pilot's license and is an honorary RAF group captain. But over and above all of that, she's a passionate Wales rugby fan. It is, of course, Carol Vorderman. Carol, welcome. <laughs> you can call me Mom now you've mentioned the honorary Greek captain. <laughs> Dame, I think, would be better. <laughs> I'm assuming you were at the Principality Stadium on Friday night. I was. I wasn't sure whether I'd still have a voice left the next day, to be honest. I was screaming and screaming and screaming. And that was the thing about the weekend. Even in Twickenham, you know, the atmosphere was extraordinary. And it was obviously always is in Cardiff, in Cardiff. But it was extra special because the quality of the rugby was so high. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, listen, we're going to talk to you a bit more about your evenings in Cardiff very shortly. But I've just got to introduce my other guest from the Evening Standard and joining the podcast for the very first time. It is sports journalist. Matt Majundi. Matt, hello to you. I'm assuming that is a French name. Does that mean that you are qualified to play rugby for France? Sadly not. Neither qualified nor good enough, but you've pronounced the name perfectly, so spot on. And thanks for having me. No, my pleasure. And from Folk on the Falcons podcast, it's a big welcome to Newcastle Falcons fan, Philip Mundi. Philip, I'm assuming you're a Geordie or are you just a you're a non-Geordie living in Geordie land? No, I'm down in London now. I've been here for good few years and my podcast host I actually used to play with back at home in Newcastle and then he was a housemate in London he went back after Covid and then we thought let's do a podcast to keep chatting about the games we're going to talk about the Six Nations action and love to hear where everyone was at the weekend but Carol first of all I want to find out a little bit more from you about your love of the game apparently it's rugby that sort of gave you a bit of an inkling into getting your TV job on countdown what's the story there then so I grew up in North Wales I'm a Welsh girl you know my clan is the Davis clan and all the family still back up there but in North Wales back because I was born in 1960 I've been around for a few years and back then rugby in North Wales wasn't a thing it was always football so I never got introduced to rugby really weirdly 
growing up in Wales until I then somehow or other went from a comp on free school meals to Cambridge to do engineering. I read engineering there. So in my second summer, I worked underground in Snowdonia. It's now called the Electric Mountain. So it's this massive hydroelectric scheme where we exploded basically this enormous cavern inside the mountain. And I was working underground with 2,000 men. I was the only woman. And my boss, I was 19, Lawrence, and he was called Andy Fraser and he was 24. And he was six foot six, played second row, beheadingly back then, obviously amateur. So Andy and I kind of fell in love and all of this. And so once I graduated, he was Yorkshireman. I used to go up to Headingley. And I said to my mum, got to go and live in Leeds. So we bought this house in Leeds, long story short. And because of Andy, because of rugby, because of all of that. And then three weeks later, she saw the advert for Countdown in the local paper in Leeds, wrote an application, forged my signature and sent it in. And that's how I got on. Oh, isn't that amazing? Now, I'm surprised, actually, if you moved to Leeds, you were sort of uh, kidnapped by Rugby League and go and support, I don't know, the Leeds Rhino. Back then, Rugby League was so much faster than Union. And it was really exciting to watch, to be perfectly honest. But because Andy played for Yorkshire and Ian McGeekin was the coach back then, Winty, Peter Winterbottom played for Headingley in Yorkshire as well and all of that and obviously England. I just kind of got into that really. So it was during the 1980s was my first sort of foray into rugby, ironically being Welsh. And just staying on the Yorkshire theme then, Ian McGeekin, you mentioned that Surrey and McGeekin now, one of the very best coaches that I've had the privilege and pleasure to play under. He was my coach at Wasps towards the end of my career, but obviously the British and Irish Lions, it was just amazing. His speech and his speeches go down in history really. And anyone who hasn't listened to them, get on YouTube and, and listen to them because he is one of the few coaches and orators who can actually deliver something so powerful and so real without swearing as well (laughs) (laughs) although he can swear too but he's um, I think he leaves most of the swearing to Jim Telfer his uh, his assistant but how did your paths cross with with Surian then well it was really because he was a coach at Headingley Rugby Union at the time and I reached the giddy heights I was in my early 20s the giddy heights of the assistant social secretary at Headingley very very important job basically I helped with the teams on the Saturday afternoon and I mean you know he wasn't like a big buddy or anything but then later in the 1980s I was filming out in Australia and I was there for a long time like six months or something doing a big travel series for BBC and there's a big gang of us there and a lot of them worked for the Queensland Tourist Board Northern Territories, tourist board and so on. And we used to fly to places and film. It was like a job from heaven, really. And we were in Cairns. This is 1989. We were in Cairns. And the lads, the film crew and everything, said, oh, right, we're going, I can't do a Aussie accent. All right, Carol, we're going to spar. I think it was called Woody's or something. That sounds sounds pretty rough and ready. That'll do. And then we're going whitewater rafting. We're going to film you tomorrow and say, be careful tonight. So we went to this bar. So we're in this bar, just taking it steady. Who walk in but the entire Lions team, right? The uh, the whole squad come into this bar and uh, Ian McGeekin was with them. Basically, I was introduced to tequila that night and they then had two days off. I mean, it was one of those nights, you know, I can't really remember too much about it. But I can remember the next day because I was whitewater rafting and and filming whitewater rafting. And how I lived, I don't know. I really don't know. So it was lovely. And I love that about rugby. Is it's like coming home now. I'm in Wales now. And um, it's like Wales just goes, Chrysler, welcome, you know, and it's arms out, give us a coach. 
And it's like that. And, and I love that. Well, listen, whatever you said to the British and Irish Lions that night, it clearly worked because they won that series, didn't they? They won 2-1 in Australia. I mean, Jeremy Guskett, he came out late, scored the winning try, I think, in the third test. And he obviously tells me that he won the whole Lions series on his own, really. But there we go. Um, <laughs> it was an amazing experience. Now, I, and I'm sure lots of other rugby fans, just love the, the passion that the Welsh have for their sport. Obviously, when it's in Wales, it, you know, they're allowed to be passionate. When the English start talking like that, you know, it's always called something very, very different. But your experiences, are, I played at the old Cardiff Arms Park and obviously the Principality Stadium. I think we played in the first game there as well. Went pretty well for England. Will Greenwood scored a hat-trick. But obviously Wales under Warren Gatland, Sean Edwards in the last, you know, decade or so have been brilliant. You know, they always punch above their weight, I think. They always seem to be so, so successful, even though they they're only, you know, have half the numbers of, of any other country. What are your experiences of the Principality Stadium and of going there for the first time? Well, the first time was quite a long time ago. I went to see Wales, Australia. And I can just remember being with some of the rugby boys. So some of the retired rugby boys, big like props and Dove were the sponsor. And I can remember one of them coming out, you know, with the hospitality bags. It was like 29 of the hospitality bags going down the escalator. That's like my this prop. I've got enough for the Italian family now. And it's free, isn't it, Carol? <laughs> uh, so that was like my first one. But probably my favourite day, sorry to mention it, but I'm going to, was a final game in the Grand Slam three years ago, 2019. And I was very lucky. I was in a WRU box. And, uh, well, you can imagine the noise, can't you? I think we were all floating about 20 feet above the air. And then England were playing Scotland immediately after. So it was on all the screens. Nobody was bothered. It was like, whatever. Uh, it was just, we were grand slamming all weekend, let's put it that way. I bet. I think we would all agree that that stadium, because of where it is, because of the fact that, um, I guess, bars open at about 10 o'clock in the morning and, you know, the game doesn't kick off sometimes until sort of, you know, 3.30, 4.30, 5.30. I mean, there's nothing like being given a run-up to a sporting match, is there, really? Uh, I know. And, and I, I say to my English friends, Lawrence, who haven't been down there, I go, it's like taking Twickenham or Wembley and putting it in Oxford Circus, isn't it? You walk out and it's kind of city centre's just there. It's amazing. Well, it's also the uh, the fact that everyone actually sings as well. I mean, it takes a little bit to get people singing at Twickenham. And, and I think it's, you know, I mean, I, we'll, we'll talk about the rugby in a second, but the connection between the Welsh fans and their team is very special. I think that we used to have that connection when we were playing at Twickenham because, I don't know, the game was just very different, you know, you and, and I think it is important that people understand that there's an emotional side to, to rugby and at Twickenham at the weekend we saw that connection because of the sending off and for the first time ever the, the fans realised that they've got to really get behind the team and the team responded. Um, in Wales that happens every game and that's something that I think makes it very very special. Philip where were you at the weekend? Were you in London? Or did you manage to make it to Twickenham? Well, I was actually at a wedding but I've caught the highlights thing the game I've watched the Newcastle one back well, I would say about what you just said about Twickenham needing something to get going. I think the difference when I've been to Murrayfield for internationals and also Cardiff is that at Twickenham, I'd say 75% of the fans there haven't held a rugby ball in the last five to ten years. And I think if you go to other stadiums... Have you seen the cost of a ticket at Twickenham? Well, it, that, that's exactly the point I get at. A lot of the people that play on a Saturday afternoon or whatever and are really part of wanting England to do, well, don't actually go to Twickenham because I can't afford it and I can't get there. I feel like in Edinburgh or Cardiff or wherever, there's a much better connection to the national team than people that go for a £100 day out. I think that it's a shame that it takes a red card early on to get people going. But 
I certainly sometimes feel that when I'm in Twickenham, I'm the only one singing the national anthem at the start. And I know that well, that's a big, a big thing for you. But um, you do sometimes look around and think, come on, what are you here for? Do you not care about club or team and country? Like, what's going on? But... Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, Matt. I mean, you cover a lot of things for the Evening Standard. Are you a regular Twickenham goer? Actually, this is the only game I've been to of the Six Nations, but I was there working on Saturday. And since we talked about the atmosphere, it was incredible. And sometimes it can be a bit of a whisper there. You know, it's not quite enough happening, but it was brilliant. It was such a great atmosphere because it was such a great game. We had Eddie Jones beforehand saying England need to get in the faces of the Irish. Unfortunately, when Charlie Ewells took that a bit too literally after 82 seconds, you're suddenly thinking, oh my God, this is going to be a horror show because Ireland run a try so quickly. I think they had another one that then got disallowed. And you're thinking, thinking this could be a really, really long afternoon. But then suddenly it galvanised England and you had all these amazing performances, Jamie George, Mario Toji, Ellis Genge, etc. And it was just so good, this sort of near triumph over adversity. And everyone was getting so into it and so into it. And you're thinking, God, this is impossible, then improbable, then infinitely possible England could win. And then suddenly that last 15 minutes, you sort of almost forgot that Ireland then ran so many points. It was actually quite a big defeat for England, 32-15. But it was a great, great game of rugby, great atmosphere. It was fantastic to be there. Yeah, listen, I, I don't disagree with that. I hate to, you know, sound like a plucky loser because no one wants to come second in anything. But you have to admire that. I think what it reminded everyone is that we have some really good players. And, you know, as you said, if they can harness that and remember those, those emotions before the kickoff, then, you know, they might... Well, listen, they've got an enormous test uh, this weekend in, in Paris. If last week was a test of character, this, this will be an even bigger test of courage and bravery. Matt, just talk to us about Ireland, though. I mean, as you said, in the end, it was what... It was a three-point game with 10 minutes to go. And then you looked at the final scoreline. Even if you weren't an England fan, you'd have felt slightly sorry for them because they put in such an effort. Yeah, it was interesting. Johnny Sexton was talking about it in the press conference afterwards. And he was saying how, you know, a few years ago, it's the sort of game that Ireland would have lost in that position. You know, suddenly it's 15-all. They're under pressure. They should be winning, but they're not. They're losing the forward battle when they've got this really established pack. But they actually kept their composure quite well. And that was what was impressive. And suddenly it just took a couple of little areas from England and just... the energy just dips towards the end and suddenly Ireland were actually quite impressive so you know, Eddie Jones talked about how cohesive they were beforehand and despite the sort of panic stations and the lots of moments that went wrong they actually held it together and were actually incredibly impressive towards the end weren't they? I mean, where are you with this England team? Because I, I come up with the Roy Keane sort of school of punditry where I'm, you know, as I used to when I worked with my team, I was quite brutal with, with each other, as I'd expect them to be with me. You know, you're in a results business and, you know, you look at the tape of the game and you say, you know, what the hell were you doing on Saturday? Because it doesn't look like you were doing your job very well. I, I mean, listen, you can't fault their character, their resilience, their courage, etc. But they've scored two tries against Ireland, Wales and Scotland in a total of three matches of rugby. And, you know, as a player... You know, you're kind of responsible for that. England are nowhere near the level of Ireland and, and France at the moment. And I guess that happens. And it's difficult for us as England fans to take because we think we should be really good all the time. But I just feel that there's a, clearly a lot of potential in that side. And for some reason, they're not unlocking that. When you work really hard to become an international rugby player, you don't want to arrive there and then underperform. It's about bringing out the best in yourself and the people around you. What do you think England need to do to get that going again? It's funny you talk about that game, but I, I found from the start of that game to the end of the game, I'm none the wiser of what this new look England team was because you had these 14 players and they just had this job to do and you didn't feel there was nothing attacking you know Ireland had all the attacks all the tries etc you didn't feel there was enough invention there but that's not to be too harsh because they had a job to do to just try and hold it together what I'd like to do is, is, is see these Eddie Jones talks about these attacking players like Harry Randall and Marcus Smith and Freddie Stewart you'd like to just see them let off the leash I, know, I don't know whether they're 
trusted enough to do that or, or what it is. But, you know, these guys are formidable when you see them play at club level. And I appreciate there's a difference to international level. But if they're let off the leash, it'd be great to see that. There's two things you need in any successful team is trust and continuity of message. And, uh, you know, for some reason, England don't trust a group of players. The team keeps chopping and changing. The coaches keep chopping and changing. And I don't think you can build very much at all with that. And, you know, whilst you're always trying to improve as a team, you can only improve once you've learned what you've been told to do in the first place. So I think there's a there's just a bit of patience. You know, I played 85 times for England and I can assure you I wasn't man of the match in every game. I played some terrible games for England, but I was given a bit of trust by the coaching group that I would come good in the end. Um, and we did actually. So yeah, that would be my take on it. Philip, for you, what's your take as a sort of Newcastle Falcons fan? I mean, should Radwan be in the squad? Should he be in the team? Or what's your views on, on Eddie Jones? On my views on Eddie Jones are a bit different to Radwan being in the squad, but... I think if we look at the England team that have made World Cup finals, we tended to have 1-15 to who played in their primary position at their best for their club at. I know you get players that can play across the back row or around the backs, but at the minute we don't play with a 12-12, or we play with a 13-12, and they're different positions. And similarly, we keep playing second rows in the back row and various mixtures of things where we think, is that the best person in the country in that position lining up for England? And it might be that they're their third best second row, but then why are you not playing back row is probably better than. On the Radwan question, I think that he's almost too specialist for Eddie Jones. He can't play centre, so he's either got to start on the wing or with the way the bench lines up, he wouldn't have him as a substitute because suddenly he can't play in the various different positions that like Stuart or Malins can. So until he's the best 14 in the country, he's probably not going to play for England. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the French, the first time ever, are actually picking people in the right positions. They've always got outstanding players, but they used to name their team sheet and you, and you go, I can't quite believe they've picked nine and he's playing 10. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm, I'm with the Eddie Jones seems to believe in getting the best players on the field, no matter what position they play. Carol, um, we're going to come to you. The the outs, we, we have this thing called outstanding. We want you to choose an outstanding player from the weekend. You can be as biased and as one-eyed as you like and go for a Welshman. That is absolutely fine. Outstanding with Fuller's London Pride. Who's caught your eye? Okay, so my favourite rugby player, and I always love it when he's uh, selected, is Josh Adams. He's so hard and so fast. He's, I love Josh Adams, as everybody knows. But I'm going to go with some special mentions. Josh Navidi, I thought, was excellent on Friday. Biggs, obviously. Marcus Smith, amazing. But it has to be, there can only be one, can't there, this last weekend, Johnny Sexton. It has to be Johnny Sexton. You know what? You have really showed yourself to be someone who knows everything about rugby because that's a special moment as well. He has the moment of the weekend where he probably is playing his last Six Nations game at Twickenham. And I thought it was a lovely touch from Andy Farrell to bring him off, even though he looked super pissed off that he was substituted. <laughs> he did! <laughs> he, is the ultimate, he is the ultimate competitor. And then he suddenly realised the reasons why he'd been substituted is not because he'd had a real bad sneaker, but because it was an opportunity for him just to enjoy what he's created and what he's done in his rugby career. And I would imagine there's not that many better experiences than coming off a field, having secured a bonus point victory against England at Twickenham and going, well done. So I think that is a wonderful, wonderful choice. Marvelous, <laughs> Matt. Where are you? Um, where, where are you going with your selection? I'm going to go to Twickenham as well, but to the other team, not not Ireland, Carol. I'm afraid, but maybe I should do. But I want to go with Jack Knoll. I know there were other players, maybe perhaps that upstaged him in the pack, but seeing that little blue scrum cap of his when he came in to play instead of Courtney Laws in in the back row was just great. And you thought, you know, this guy comes off the wing, and you think, oh, geez, this could be nasty. And against this Irish pack, I mentioned the experience, and he was just fantastic. And talking afterwards, he was buzzing. He absolutely loved the experience of getting in the mix and people suggest 
said, well, maybe his future's at flanker. And he said, absolutely no chance because when he done it, does, does it in training, he gets completely beaten up by these, I mean, giants like Courtney Laws. So I think he was happy as a one-off, but I really, really enjoyed watching him play that position. Philip, for you, who's your outstanding player of the weekend? I'm going to have to stick with the Falcons, aren't I? So um, I think he's a player that's embarrassingly good and somehow he's never been selected for the senior national cap. It's George McWigan. I think the reason he hasn't got selected for England might be his age. He's getting on in his career now, but he's also eligible for Ireland. And it wouldn't surprise me if Ireland get a couple of injuries if he scrapes into the Ireland squad in the next Six Nations of the World Cup because he's under the radar. He never misses a man in the line-out. He gets around the park. He, he saw his stats against Quinns a couple of weeks ago. I was down at the stoop watching it. And every week he puts in an absolute shift and he got two tries against the Saracens. Well, I tell you who, well, not everyone spotted the uh, the young man who tried to get on the pitch and, and sort of join the England anthem. Maybe he thought he was a better singer. He had an England shirt on and was, I mean, it takes a fair bit of bravery to run on a pitch that has more special forces soldiers holding both flags than... <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, Lawrence, I was there. I was at Twickenham when Erica Rowe ran on the pitch. Oh, my word. Now, I, now, I, now, can I say, I wish I'd been there when Erica <laughs> 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 I was there. There's that lovely, lovely, iconic photo of the policeman putting his helmet, putting his helmet on. <laughs> Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Anyway, we're going to bring me back down to earth again. Philip, I've given you an opportunity just to talk about your Focon Falcons podcast, just to understand exactly what it covers. I'm assuming being a Newcastle Falcons fan, you've had an extraordinary journey. You've, you've been champions. You've lived in the shadow of St. James's Park and Sir John Hall's money. You robbed Wasps of their best five players, which made me captain of the club at the age of about 16. And uh, you've just lost one of your, your most famous players, Vainga Twigamala. You've, you've got Doddy Weir, who is just the most incredible human being, who, who suffered from MND. I've had probably the most famous rugby player in the world, Johnny Wilkinson. I mean, have you always been a Geordie fan? Have you been through all of those emotions? Yeah, so I started off like every boy in the North East, big and United fan. And then my grandfather, he always called them Gosforth till the day he died, but he watched them through amateur era and started taking me along as a boy. And I guess when Nick and Spigamal passed away the other week, but he was my first sporting icon in rugby. He was a wonderful man and he did a thing at the local church once and I went along and then I saw him three or four weeks later at a scouts football tournament and he recognised me and came over and said hello and that just sums up the man. 
Yeah, so I, I followed us through. I went to Twickenham, saw the Harlequins in the final in 2001, 2003, and then sail a couple of years later. Now, I used to run on the pitch at the end of the games and get the autographs of the players who just listed off and all the rest of it. And a love affair was born. And then I started playing and one of the lads who I played with at my local club, Ian, I did a podcast with, Friends Through Rugby. And then uh, we were housemates in London for a couple of years. I uh, used to go to the away games at Jersey and in the Championship got Ealing Trailfinders Cup I've just spotted I've got next to me so we, we got around good boy so Phil come on now tell me there's a lot of frustration on the terraces at the minute well I mean you obviously got your ear close to the ground I presume you get to interview the players you get them on as guests what's the uh, what are the fans thinking about the current setup at the minute yeah so I spoke to Matt Thompson former player who played against you a few times I'm sure Lawrence his father was Dave Thompson the chairman and he was hooker we had him on a few weeks ago and we were talking about various things and one of the key things he said was at the minute they I don't know what the exact numbers are, but he basically said 6,000 is breaking even point for the club and 9,000 is when they can really start getting the money in and pushing the salary cap. And at the minute, our attendance this season are three, 5,000. Part of the issue that is we just don't play exciting rugby at the minute. I think as far as the pack go, probably got a pack that's just as good as any in the league, if not better than quite a few. And then we've got good outside backs as well, but it's the inside three quarters where we've got the issue. I mean, I hate to say it, but you know, rugby's becoming a bit like football. If you look at the football table, you know, the four teams that spend the most amount of money are at the top of the English Premier League. And, uh, you know, as well as, I mean, you know, apparently they're all super coaches. I'm sure they are, but super coaches need super players to win things, don't they, really? So, uh, and if, if you look at rugby, if you look at the current Gallagher Premiership, you know, there is always the odd exception to the rule and you have a good season and you have a, you know, a run of, of no injuries, etc. But if you look at the table, I'd roughly imagine, if you look at the wage bill of all those teams, I bet it would be about the same order. Well, if we look at the wage bill of one and two in the league, Saracens and Leicester, and got a few questions to answer in the past, haven't they? So, You'd probably bang on the money with that observation. Come on, Phil, don't be controversial. I've I've managed to avoid controversy my entire career. (laughs) (laughs) Now, listen, we wish you all the very best. We're going to hand over to Matt because um, we try and give our listeners a little bit of rugby trivia that they didn't know before the show and probably that most of us didn't know before the show. Over the line or in the bin with Fuller's London Pride, the official beer of Premiership Rugby. Yes, yeah, so it's the true or false. You've got to decide whether it's over the line, okay. it's true, or alternatively, it's false and it's in the bin. So today's fact is Wales fly half Dan Bigger scored all of his side's points against France. But back in the day, we wind the clock back a few years, he used to have a pre-kicking routine that used to be nicknamed the Big Arena, which is a homage to the 1990s hit, the Macarena. Now, is that over the line? Or in the bin. I was going to say, actually, maybe we don't go with Carol first because she's looking knowledgeable. Well, I know the answer to that. Okay, one. well, we won't go with Carol first. We'll go. We'll we'll go with Philip first then because you've got the advanced Wales knowledge. Well, I actually was once sitting in uh, in Victoria Station. You've got a sports bar above it, and when we got beaten by Wales in the World Cup last time, I was sitting there somewhat inebriated as Dan Bigger kept slotting the posts of my friends doing all this sort of thing, and we called it the Dan Bigger Shuffle, and then. I don't know if you remember the Wall Street Shuffle song from way back. I can't remember where we ended up that night, but that came on. And then we started, so the Wall Street Shuffle, we started doing the damn bigger shuffle and all these dance moves came out. So um, <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm going to say that it's probably going to be true because of Carol's re- reaction earlier on. <laughs> Lawrence, we better go with you second then. Well, I, listen, I mean, I'm always in the bin, so I'm going to go over the line, right? So uh, I'm... Uh, 
Yeah, he's actually whispered this, but he's actually one of my favourite players, and he's Welsh. Yeah, I'm going to go, what did I say? Over the line. But Carol can give us the real answer because she knows. I know. Well, I know it's over the line. And we have, and you should get him on your podcast, actually, a little boy in Wales who's called Rocco. And I did a show with Scott Quinnell, Scotty Bach, and uh, we had Rocco on. He's only like six years old now, and he does all these impressions of Welsh rugby players. And they're brilliant, like Adam Beard and, and Adam Jones and Biggs he does. And he did and he would always do this whole thing and then they film and he's running up, you know, he's kicking the ball and everything. He does look, and he's brilliant. You should get him on. He's fantastic. So because of Rocco, age six, from Neath probably, I would say that it's over the line. So it's going to be a big surprise to all of you, but you're uh, spot on with the answer. Yeah, the big <laughs> rainer was 2015 World Cup, Rugby World Cup phenomenon, I think, when he took over kicking duties. And this is ridiculous routine that uh, my, my son used to do and used to love. That actually, he's, he sort of diminished. It doesn't seem to happen so much, but this jittery routine obviously did some effect because he scored 56 points in that World Cup. So anyway, you're all spot on. Brilliant. What do we win, Matt? Just my praise. Is that enough? <laughs> Um, listen, we're going to talk about the last round of the Six Nations before we let everyone go. But Carol, before we talk about Wales-Italy, which you're going to, which can be another fantastic game, but the, the women's game is growing every single yes. day. Just the phenomenal growth of women's rugby. England have a very good side. So do many of the other Six Nations. What's your take on that? It's just, you know, it's fantastic now that they that the game is where it is. We just need to get more fans in the stadium watching them, don't we? Yeah, really? and I think, because I have this uh, radio show on BBC Radio Wales, and I'm always talking you know talking to some of the girls um who play for wales women and i've always been a big fan of theirs and it was a big step forward for the wales women this year because the wru have given i think it's 12 of them yeah professional contracts yeah yeah because a lot of them you know if they were living up in manchester or in north wales or wherever would have to come down to cardiff twice a week literally drive four hours there train four hours back and keep a full-time job down and it's not against the english women at all it's just that it's it's wonderful now that some of them can properly concentrate on being rugby players so I think once you see that sort of fairer uh, competition starting I think it's really growing I love to watch it I really love to watch it. I love the girls I love them no, listen, I, I agree. They've got the, you know, the Women's World Cup coming up. I mean, I think the average in England, certainly, I'm sure it's probably even less in Wales. The, I think the full-time women get £35,000 a year as a contract. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, it's sort of derisory, isn't it, really? With all due respect, England men's team get £25,000 each for playing for England at the weekend. Win or lose. So uh, there you go. Um, so there's a long way to go. It's not just about money. I accept that. But uh, I'm sure we'll see that development grow and grow and grow. So Wales, Italy, you know, sometimes you go with your mates. Sometimes you get an invite from the WRU and you do it the corporate way. What, what's in store this weekend? It's with my mates and I'm taking my daughter, Katie. So she's 29 now and she's just yeah. got a PhD from Cambridge and she's never been to the Principality before. So she's going to come. Oh. Have you told her to keep away from all those rubbish? players <laughs> I think she'd suit one or two actually but, um, when I grew up in North Wales you'll like this Lawrence my stepfather in Denby was Italian he'd been a prisoner of war and um, first language Italian second language Welsh third language English 
and Gabriella Rizzi, and he swore every third word, and I absolutely adored him. So, you know, most of my childhood was growing up in an Italian household in Wales. So Wales, Italy is very special to me. Very well, can you imagine? It's like a singing contest, Wales, Italy. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, the Italian anthem is, uh, is probably everyone's favourite anthem, and it goes on for about three hours, but it is everyone's favourite anthem. <laughs> they all start crying, and they all start getting very emotional. I go to a lot of air shows, you're saying. I'm a, a, yeah, a, yeah, absolutely. And the, the Frecci, the Italian Red Arrows, they have the best commentary ever. So where we blow smoke, you know, which is red, white and blue, obviously they have green, red, white. And they have, you know, Ness and Dorma going and everything going on, I think. But the commentary is brilliant. And he goes, I'm the number five. He is the most handsome pilot in Europe today. <laughs> just to listen to the commentary is fantastic. Everyone's the most handsome. Everyone is. It's just brilliant. Well, I have to say, I was, because of my father's Italian birth, I was given the opportunity to play for Italy when I was 18. And the game was very amateur. They flew me by private jet over to Milan. They showed me around the, the flat that they were going to give me, the place at Milan University. They showed me the salary they were going to pay me. And I was thinking, I'm not sure anyone, you're, you're allowed to pay anyone any salary. They said, Lawrence, this is Italy. It's no problem. I mean, of course, we, we have to pay you something like this. So anyway, my father was like, where do, where do we sign? Um, and, uh, and then I went to watch a game. And it was a club game in Italy. And we're talking about 1991 here. And David Campesi was playing for this club, Milan. And I mean, it was a shit show. I think he touched the ball once. I mean, it was just a mess. I was thinking, I, I can't play. I could never play. But if I'd have accepted that, then obviously, you know, it would have been amazing. I probably would have been a bit like Sergio Parisi, played for about 150 years and won one game. You know? so, <laughs> fantastic. But I did captain England against Italy in the first ever game in the Six Nations in Rome in 2000. And I was so proud. It was in that little small Flaminio stadium. And I never forget, I took my father over there and I said, Dad, you're going to be the official translator for the post-match reception, even though I can speak reasonably good Italian. Anyway, we won 85 nil, which was, you know, a bit of a disappointment for the Italians. But the post-match reception was the best post-match reception we've ever been to in the Six Nations. It was a beautiful palace on the top of the hill. And I got up and I made my speech and, and, and I started by saying, uh, you know, welcome to the Six Nations. And this is the most amazing, you know, post-match reception we've ever seen in our lives. And my dad then got up, he said, my son, I just wants to say, yeah? and I said, no, no, dad, in Italian, yeah. I said, you're translating my, my English into English at the moment with an Italian accent. Everyone burst out laughing, but uh, I think, listen, Italy have still got a long way to go, but I, I can't see them getting their first victory for a very long time down in the Principality Stadium. Matt, Ireland against Scotland, France against England. We're going to talk about these games both collectively, really, because they sort of almost are connected. I mean, England have got a real task on their hands. All the Celtic sides used to make a habit of ruining England's Grand Slam. So I hope England might have a, just have a little bit of an idea about how to ruin the French. But, you know, there's one thing going to play in France when you're not never quite sure what's happening, but the French look a very, very strong outfit now, don't they? Can you see England getting anything out of that game? Yeah, I think all the sensibilities, you're just thinking with your head, all the sensibilities are France will win. They're great I mean, they've got such an amazing calibre of players. They're so nicely attack-minded. And now with Sean Edwards, that defence is just incredible. But then there's that Grand Slam element. And the French players won't be oblivious to that fact that suddenly the Grand Slam's there, the expectation, the pressure of the weak builds. And that can make 
teams crumble. I'm not saying France will, but that's the one part. And so if England do get in the faces again, they're intense, and perhaps use some of that highball game that Wales did to put the French under pressure, that's a possibility that they could win there. I mean, you know, if, if Ireland win, that puts further pressure on France in the earlier games. So, so I don't know. But, you know, realistically, you'd think France would win that game reasonably comfortably in Paris. OK, well, listen, I mean, I'm assuming we asked you to predict all three. OK, so we're going to say Wales are going to win. I think even I will say that. No problem at all. We think uh, a home win for Ireland against Scotland and a French Grand Slam. Do we all think a French Grand Slam? It's not anti-English, but I kind of want the French to, to have a Grand Slam, to be honest, because we've got the World Cup there and I think it's just wonderful. And they haven't won the Six Nations title for about 12 years, I think. It might even be longer than that. It seems utterly incredible that they haven't done that. And, you know, Wales are the current champions and, and yeah, it seems seems quite fitting that they pass that over to the French. So uh, I think well, I have to say on Friday night, every time there was a shot of Sean Edwards coming up on the big screen, it was like we were all like, ah. <laughs> you know what? He smiles on the inside. I worked with him for many, many years. He's the, just the nicest guy in the world. Do you know what? He wrote forward to my book, my autobiography. I'm sure you all bought it and coloured it in. It's called In the Blood. I asked him to write the forward. And, and of course, you know, having worked and, and played together for many years, he wrote it. When you read it, I had no idea that I was driving to Wasps one day and there was a lady on the side of the road and she her car had broken down. She was having real issues changing the tyre. So thank God I stopped, right? Because I stopped and helped this woman and I changed her tyre and I got her back on the road and it turns out it was Sean Edwards' mum. <laughs> and I think the gist of the forward was, you know, he mentioned everything about, you know, playing and coaching me, etc. And he said, and do you know what? He said, if someone looks after your mum and helps your mum, you're never going to forget that, are you really? So, and I was thinking to myself, thank, thank God I pulled over. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd have killed me, wouldn't it, really? So, uh, he's a very special man. And um, I've said this many times before. I said, when Eddie Jones decides to take the boarding pass and go back to Australia, which he will do at some point, I'm sure, I want Andy Farrell back from Ireland. Thank you very much. I want Sean Edwards back from France. And I might even go and join them and, um, and we can see what we can do with England. Oh, wow. That would be something. It would be amazing. Listen, I wish you all the most incredible weekends, wherever you're going to be watching. Thank you all for joining me on the Rugby Podcast. So a huge, huge thank you to Carol, to Philip and to Matt. Don't forget to give us the podcast a like, subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And thank you for listening. See you all next week. Lawrence Delalio's Rugby Podcast, supported by Fuller's London Pride, the official beer of Premiership Rugby. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.